Last week I used a, a slide. That's the title of the series that Willow Park is doing, Supernatural. And it's really a look at specifically the chapter 8 of Romans. Uh, last week I used this slide in a slightly different, I just had it listed kind of one to six, but for this morning, I've decided to keep it uh, because I think it effectively, the left-hand side effectively separates, I would say, Paul's old life from Paul's new life. That Paul lived a fair amount of his life in the side of religion and law and all that meant for him. And then God intercepts Paul's life, and Paul begins to live on the right hand of that screen. And it's kind of Paul's passion for the rest of his life to help people not get those two sides mixed up, not to let the right-hand side of freedom kind of move towards the left-hand side, which really is the side of judgment. And the left-hand side is a side of condemnation. In essence, Paul would say, the left-hand side condemns us. The right-hand side is really the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ that sets us free, that allows us to walk as forgiven people and allows us the gift, not only of life, but of life eternal. So um, that's kind of why they're left and right. And I think uh, as I speak, hopefully that'll help um, kind of keep our thoughts together. Uh, Paul, the God-inspired writer of Romans, fully understood both sides of that screen, that he would have grown up immersed in the rituals and all the expectations of temple sacrifices and religious law, that this actually was his world for many, many years, and it actually shaped his view of the entire world. So he looked at the world through the lens of the left-hand side of that screen, through religion, through keeping of laws. Um, it's interesting, it was a mindset in Paul that validated what we would simply regard today as religious terrorism or religious fanaticism. That where being zealous for God made it acceptable and even honorable to hunt down and drag followers of Jesus out of their homes and to believe that this was somehow pleasing in the sight of God. It was, in fact, the effect of the law on Paul's life. It was the effect of living on the left-hand side of that screen. So you might say Paul was very fervent, but he was fervently wrong. And if I read a, just a short passage from Acts chapter 9, I, I think we sometimes don't understand how 
dramatic Paul's conversion was. In Acts chapter 9, it says this, and before his conversion, he was known by the name Saul. And it says, meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest, so he went to his higher-ups, and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way. So Paul quite literally going to his higher-ups, can you give me a letter that gives me the authority to arrest anyone who I see who is a follower of Jesus? He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. And then, as you know, the next part, it says, As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When Paul, inter- or shouldn't say that, when God intercepted Paul's life, it's interesting that at that moment he was on a mission to continue to persecute followers of Jesus. He was on the road to Damascus, ready to hunt them down. And when he was intercepted by God, it wasn't that God wanted to fine-tune Paul's understanding It was to reveal to Paul that the very people he was persecuting were those who were actually on the right path. That Paul, those you persecute are the true followers of God. And in fact, Paul, in persecuting them, Paul, you are actually persecuting me. And it's interesting that Paul did not truly see that truth until his physical eyes were blinded. If you read that story, the result of that confrontation with the God that he was persecuting, for a while Paul was blind, and it was during that time that his spiritual eyes, the eyes of his heart, began to see the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we talk about Paul, I think we need to remind ourselves that his conversion was indeed unique. Paul didn't come to faith as a result of listening to a really good message by Peter or by one of the other disciples. Um, Paul didn't slowly warm to this gospel that he heard being preached. He was, in fact, confronted by God. In fact, he was confronted by the very God he was persecuting. And God transformed this judgmental, condemning heart. And Paul, who had lived a life of inflicting persecution on others, became a man who was willing to suffer persecution for the sake of this gospel. And Paul, instead of becoming zealous for the law, became zealous for the faith. Paul became zealous for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for which he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God 
offering salvation to whoever believes. It's interesting, I think, that um, uh, people of history would know this better than I, that religion has been and still is used as justification to kill. Uh, often validated in terms that might um, describe itself as a holy war. And even the Christian faith, if you go through the histories, it's been used in ways in which it should not have been used. And then in contrast, there is this faith in the gospel of Jesus. A king, a savior who accepted death in order to set people free and today is building for himself a very unique kingdom. That he's building a community of faith. He's building a community of believers willing to suffer and die for their faith. And Paul says, you know what? Count me in. Paul says, I was so wrong. The gospel transformed Paul to such a degree that his own physical body bore the marks of repeated beatings. That his body bore visible witness to the depth of Paul's faith. And if you were to ask Paul, how convinced are you of this gospel that you are preaching, Paul could likely take his shirt off, show you his back, and say, I am that convinced, willing to suffer that for no legal justification, that I am willing to offer my body as a living sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. On Tuesday night, some of you uh, were here, uh, Chris Weintz, uh, had a gathering uh, to talk about the work being done in northern India. And uh, it's really quite amazing. It's a truly an unreached gr uh, area of the world. Um, in fact, one of the most highly unreached areas in terms of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, Chris had brought with him a fellow who kind of oversees those churches, Dr. John Sankara. And John in his conversation on Tuesday night, talked about the Hindu culture. And he talked about that within the Hindu culture, there are literally millions of gods. And he says many, if not most, of their gods come armed with a weapon of some kind in their hand. And Dr. John was just contrasting that with the gospel of Jesus Christ, who when he opens his hands, what you see are the scars of pain and suffering. That that is our king, that is our God. Son of God willing to die in order that his followers, you and me, might receive the gift of eternal life. Paul knew the destructive power of the law because it was his former life. And so in the book of Romans, if you read through it, it's only natural that Paul spends a lot of time talking about the law. When Paul references the law, you can say he's really talking about the first five books of the Old Testament. 
that this would be what the Jewish people would have looked to in terms of what God wanted for them as a people, what God wanted for them as his people. And along with those, in those five books, you have a multitude of laws that govern virtually every part of their life as a community. And so when Paul talks about the law, he's not really sort of talking about the laws of the land, like make sure you don't speed. And I felt sorry for somebody this morning when I was picking up a coffee at Starbucks and just as I was pulling out, there was this black car with shiny blue and red lights following somebody down. Is that Oceala? And, uh, you know, I guess that person had broken a law of the land. Paul is not really talking about that kind of law. Paul is talking about, I will put it this way, God's code of conduct for his people. How his people should live. The Old Testament says many times, I will be your God, you will be my people, and you will show forth the glory of God to the nations around you by how you live. That was the purpose of the law that was given to the people of Israel. And if you are familiar with that story, the Old Testament story, that that did not necessarily go particularly well. But there's also another kind of law that Paul speaks about in Romans. He speaks about a, a law that's actually written on the hearts of all people. He makes reference to an inner voice in virtually every man, woman, and child that differentiates between right and wrong. Romans 2.15 puts it this way, and I think what I'm going to read here is probably slightly different than what's there, so I'll read what's up here. They, and the they is people apart from the Jewish people of God, so he's talking about what you might say, those that the Jews would have considered outsiders. He said they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, saying, you shouldn't have done that and you know it, and at other times even defending them, saying, you know, that was a good thing you did. And so there's this law that God specifically gave to the people of Israel. And then Paul said, there's another law that's written on the hearts of everybody. And as I was reading that, I thought about where did that law come from? That law that's written on the hearts of every man and woman, where did that come from? It was not a law written down. Paul says it's a law you've been carrying in your very person. And as I thought about that, I thought about the story in Genesis. The freedom that God gave to Adam and Eve was in essence almost unlimited. 
gave them the freedom to eat of every tree. In that story, I think the message is that from God is that everything that you see here is for you and your enjoyment. Except for one thing. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan speaks into their hearts the deception, and he says to them, oh, you know what? God doesn't want you to eat from that because then you will be like him. And I think the story of Genesis is the truth that this knowledge of good and evil was information we were never meant to hold. That that belongs, you might say, in the purview of God himself. And that choice, that rebellion, has guided and at the same time confused and frustrated man ever since. That this knowledge of good and evil, that inner law has followed us around, it has judged us, it at times has taunted us, it may have haunted us, and Paul would say it has condemned us ever since. So Paul's message is that people who tried to keep God-given laws, and even people who tried to follow the laws written on their heart or the laws written in their conscience, in the end find themselves at the same place, unable to keep the law. And in fact, he would say the law finds us guilty. In chapter 7 of Romans, there's a great conversation, and in it, Paul kind of admits that even our faith and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ does not mean our wrestling or our battle is over. That when we receive Jesus as our Savior, in fact, I would say our faith begins to heighten our awareness of sin. And in this battle, we continue to have victories, and we continue at times to have defeats. Paul talks about this as the wrestling that he experiences as a missionary, as a child of God, admitting, he says, I do not always do what I know I should do, and at times I find myself doing the very things I know I should not do. And he says, who will rescue me? And Paul answers his own cry in this very powerful declaration of the first four verses of chapter 8 of Romans. And there is so much written in these four verses that talks about our faith and there's so much about these four verses that we need to literally read and believe and apply 
and soak into our life so that we can live not as condemned, but as free people. Therefore, because of the gospel, there is now no condemnation. And I think we should highlight that. For those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, and by the flesh it simply means we on our own cannot keep it. God did. By sending his own son, and this is very interesting, this next phrase, in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, here's another phrase we need to highlight. He condemned sin in the flesh. So the very things that we, in terms of our physical body and our conscience, could not do, Jesus fulfilled in a body that it every way was similar to ours, except it was without sin. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not by our good works, people. So that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Our own conscience, spiritual laws, religion, apart from Jesus, end up being voices of uncertainty, and they end up being voices of condemnation. You're not good enough. You can't do it. You need to try harder. In all those scenarios, sin wins by pronouncing us guilty. And Paul refers to that as the law of sin and ultimately the law of death. But Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law in his physical body, a body made similar to ours, yet without sin. And so while sin condemns us, I think it's so awesome in this verse it says, in Jesus, Jesus condemned sin. In other words, in Jesus, the power of sin was broken on our behalf and for us. 2 Corinthians, when Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, he says the same thing in slightly different words. God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In a slightly different translation, it's, it's um, described this way. God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. And then there's this great verse, and if there's anything we need to leave with this Sunday morning, it's the truth of that verse. We need to believe that with all our hearts, and we need to walk in that. For those who believe the gospel has set us free from the penalty that the law of sin demands, and that penalty ultimately is death, 
But in exchange, the gospel has offered us a gift. It's the gift of the righteousness of Jesus on our behalf. That he became sin for us so that we might inherit not the death we deserve, but the gift of life and life eternal. So therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I love that phrase, in. We need to see ourselves in him. The Old, Temp the Old Testament and, and temple worship required the blood of innocent animals. I think it speaks to the holiness the purity of our God, his hatred for sin, yet his love for his creation. Every time in the Old Testament that an animal was sacrificed for the sins of the people, that animal died. That animal gave its life. It bore the penalty of our sin. But none of those animals ever came back to life. So in the Old Testament, you have this repeated cycle of offerings for the sins of the people. One of the many names given to Jesus is to describe him as the spotless lamb of God. It's a reference to what would have happened over and over in the Old Testament. But it's God in the likeness of human flesh who humbled himself to the point of death. A sacrifice not of an animal, but of a man, son of man, son of God, in human likeness, but a sacrifice that death could not hold. A sacrifice in which death was swallowed up in the victory of the resurrection. A sacrifice, Paul says, given once for all who believe. Death could not hold Jesus because he fulfilled every letter of the law that condemned us. And the powerful message of Romans and Romans chapter 8 is that his righteousness has become ours. In fact, we are his righteousness. Dressed in his righteousness alone, we sing, faultless to stand before the throne of God. So there is no condemnation for us, because we are in Christ Jesus. We belong to him. We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. Our life is hidden in him. We live under the shelter of his wings. We live under the shelter of his righteousness alone. And Paul is declaring to us that in life, 
including our struggles, including our struggles and our sins, we need to run to the shelter that has been erected for us, and that shelter is the righteousness of Jesus on our behalf. That's where we go. Because it is all-sufficient. It is the all-sufficient, all-powerful righteousness of Jesus. And as a result, we can come into the very presence of God, dressed in the righteousness of Jesus our Lord. And it's this shelter that Paul embraced. He says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to all who believe. We need to embrace Jesus. We need to embrace the truth that because of the cross and the resurrection, there is now therefore no condemnation. For those who are in Christ. I want to say this morning, don't, don't beat yourself up. At times, we do. Don't give up the fight. Don't give up the faith. Don't even necessarily strive harder. I would rather say, lift up your heads and pray, God, increase my faith in the gospel of the cross and the resurrection and the righteousness of Jesus on my behalf. Help me get up every morning and clothe myself in his righteousness. I think that's such a sweet picture. Get up every morning. Wrap yourself in the righteousness of Christ. Fill your heart with that as you begin and as you walk through your day. Because I am in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation for me as a child of God. This week and last week a bit, I've been looking at this word condemnation. And as I looked at that word, I thought, well, if there's a good way I could do this on a slide, I would have done it. Apart from God, that word describes us, that we are a condemned nation, that we are, apart from God, condemned people. But in Jesus, we have become his, not condemned nation, but his holy nation. And we are holy because of Jesus, a people set apart to declare the glory of God called to live according to his purposes and his will. And I just want to say this morning, let's walk in that truth that there is now therefore no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. I'm going to invite the worship team to, to come up. I think sometimes when... Uh, we or I read the Bible and I read about Paul, I probably underestimate the transformation in that man's life. The incredible power of the truth of the gospel and the transformation that it made for Paul. 
And it was not a transformation into perfection. It was a transformation into trust in the righteousness, the truth, the grace of God. That God wasn't calling him towards another set of laws. It's not calling him to another religion. He is calling him to faith in Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And in Christ there is no condemnation. It is such a sweet, sweet faith that we have in Jesus.